um, titles. I'm an authorized stipendiary lay minister of the Anglican Church in the Melbourne Diocese. So, um, so anyway, so, so I, I am not um, unaware of Anglicanism and have grown uh, immensely in my walk with the Lord um, in connection with the Anglican Church. So my task uh, today is for us to um, reflect upon uh, our litany that you're walking through and I hear last week that you uh, reflected upon Ruth, and I'll read uh, the litany for this week and then invite you to respond with thanks be to God. For Isaiah, John the Baptist, and all the prophets, and all who speak the truth without counting the cost, thanks be to God. So, I'm focusing on Isaiah, and I, I just find it ironic that you have to there's so few people who know much about the prophets, so I'm, I'm an Isaiah guy, and uh, I think uh, Matt Milner said, hey, Andy, why don't you come in with us? So I recognize Isaiah is a pretty unfamiliar book, 66 chapters of it, maybe familiar with the bits and pieces here or there, but my hope this morning is to give us a, a sense of orientation to the book and engage with some glimpses that you'll have of God as you read through that book. Now, as we come to Isaiah, we're mindful in the church that God has been pleased to speak in and through the book of Isaiah throughout the centuries. We have in the New Testament over 250 quotations from the book of Isaiah, second only to Psalms. You have Jerome, uh, who was a great interpreter uh, and translator of the church. Um, he, He reflects on Isaiah and says, you know, Isaiah is really should be called an evangelist more than the prophet, more than a prophet, because of all the good news um, that he sees in the book of Isaiah. And when I was writing, um, I don't say this to promote a book, my book, but there was a moment that hit me when um, I received a book cover from the publisher, and there was a stained glass window um, of. Isaiah the prophet, and it just opened for me this joy and responsibility of speaking and teaching and researching on a prophet who's had such an impact that he would find himself in stained glass windows throughout the United Kingdom, throughout um, even here's a portrait of him uh, in Belgium. We even have a portrait or a I don't know if sculpture is the right word, Um, but we have here a really hideous scene of wild animals trying to devour mankind, but then you have Isaiah the prophet, and this is zoomed in on him, and he's like leaning away from it, and you get this sense of Isaiah kind of trying to pull away from this evil that uh, Father Martin spoke about today and trying to call people away from the devouring of Satan and the evil one. And you even see in the city of Chicago uh, an icon of the prophet Isaiah. And I love this image uh, by an American artist, Irving Amen, where I think likely what he's tapping into is this hope that Isaiah has in Isaiah 11 of a stump. Um, and from that stump, a, a shoot coming up from it, th- this great hope coming out of something that seems lifeless. And, and he's tried to, I, I think, capture that 
in the portrait of, or the, this um, picture of Isaiah himself. So I know I had to use um, some art here in this church. So, um, but the question I think we can ask ourselves as we're thinking about the prophet is what actually is a prophet? And I want to show you a, a, an image here. As you look at this, there's actually two things that some of you are seeing. You, you see this, and most of you in here are seeing a face. How many of you would say, I see a face? Okay. How many of you say, I see a word here? Okay, a few of you. So if we put these side by side, you, you see one is a face, and the other is a word, liar. Now, Here's the thing about prophets. The prophets are seeing something way different than what others around them are seeing. The people around them are seeing a face. In a sense, they're seeing, hey, we're the people of God. We're really doing what God wants. But the prophet receives this vision, this divine vision, and can read the community and say, actually, God is seeing the same thing, but he's seeing it quite differently. And I, I, so as we think about what actually is a prophet, I love our litany because it reflects upon Isaiah as one who is speaking the truth no matter what the cost. And tradition has it that Isaiah was actually sawn in two um, at the end of his life. So a prophet, one way to think about it is as a spokesperson for and to God who uses a variety of methods to call the community to align with God's kingdom. So, uh, so a prophet is a spokesperson for God, and he's not just predicting these real distant prophecies that have nothing to do with the people in the moment. Instead, the prophet is pr- predicting things in the future. He is addressing things right at that time. He's giving promises of hope. He's giving words of judgment. A whole range of um, words from God the prophet delivers, but the purpose is is to call God's people into a more faithful reflection of who God's community should should actually be. he's He's that prophet saying, wait a minute, you think that you look like a face, but actually God sees the word liar. Okay? He, he's seeing things different, and he's, he's doing it in a way to call people into the Lord. So let's, let's just see a little bit of this in Isaiah chapter 1. And I know this is small print, but if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. But, and I'll read a few things, but look at how the whole book begins. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up. But they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know, and my people do not understand. He's saying to the people, you are actually God's children. But guess what class of children you belong to? That class that has rebelled against a father. And no one likes to be told that they are like an animal. I remember when I was um, in middle school, there was this icebreaker, and I was sitting next to a girl that I kind of had a crush on. 
and you had to tell the person next to you what animal they reminded you of. Okay? And she, she said to me, she said, um, giraffe. That's a very logical one. I mean, it, you know, I'm pretty tall. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm a lion, though, you know? I'm, I'm you know, and, but, but think of Isaiah trying to get the people to see actually oxen, donkeys, they actually know who their master is. They go to their master for food. But my people, you don't even understand. You don't get it. You don't get that I am your master. So you see here, here the prophet, um, and, and we, he calls them whores in this chapter. He, he uses some of the strongest imagery to help them really connect with who they are. And God is calling them through this critique, through this critique, to come to himself. But he does more than just critique. He invites them. He says, wash yourself. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And of course, this positive command is placed right after God saying, I don't want your prayers. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your festivals. Because there's blood on your hands. Here's the way forward. Live a life of justice. And we see even an invitation here for them not to remain in their sinful status, but to know from the Lord that though their sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. So a wonderful invitation into God's community through knowing the God who forgives. Forgives even those children who've rebelled. Knows even those, or forgiving even those people who aren't even as sharp as animals. He's inviting them back. So this gives you a sense for the nature of prophecy, and, and we experience that in the book of Isaiah, the invitation into God's kingdom. And one question we can ask is, well, how, do, how does prophecy work? The first thing I'll mention about how prophecy actually works is to recognize that prophecy is a word that addresses a particular moment in time. And this is based in the conviction that we see manifest most fully when, when the Son takes on flesh as Jesus Christ of a God who enters into time and space and addresses particular contexts. Now, this is one of the hardest parts for people reading Isaiah. They start seeing mentions of nations like Assyria, Babylon, and you're wondering, what? This just seems so distant. This seems like such a distant era. But what we want to affirm in thinking about prophecy is that it was a word at a particular moment in time. But we also want to affirm that God's word and prophecy, really all of scripture, is a word that God speaks throughout time as well. So it's a word that speaks in time and a word that speaks out or throughout time. And this is anchored in what I would call the Trinitarian principle, 
as or, or the canonical principle and the redemptive historical principle. The canon recognizes that even if you say have a book like Isaiah, it's now been placed into a much bigger canon. It's now a word that refracts throughout the entirety of Scripture, and we can hear it now speaking even unto the church. And it's a word that speaks along the line of redemptive history. So let me give a couple comments here as it relates to that moment in time that Isaiah is speaking to. Isaiah is speaking initially during a time when there is a nation in this area. This is a map of the Mediterranean Sea here. Israel would be down in this area, Egypt. And then up here in this region would have been Assyria. Assyria is a growing empire at the time. They were known um, for being brutal in their conquests. And in fact, Sennacherib, a king, um, I'm sorry, Sennacherib, a king from uh, Assyria, writes on his own what I like to call royal wallpaper. Um, he puts us up uh, on his walls of his palace, they're called reliefs, um, a, a portrait of him destroying a major city called Lachish, which is in uh, southern Judah. And uh, talks about taking 46 cities throughout Judah. And we read also in some earlier annals, um, King Sargon as well as uh, King Shalmaneser, that about sieges that were uh, being undertaken uh, throughout the northern part of it in, in Israel. So Assyria was looming large and was wreaking a lot of havoc. And here's what the people would be wondering. I thought we were God's people. How is it that this pagan nation of Assyria is whooping us? Why is it that we that, that, that this nation is taking us out of the land and the prophet is speaking into that and helping them see that no, 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 no. Assyria is not the one in control here. There's a king greater than him. And this king is the Lord himself. And after Assyria had their prominence, then came Babylon. And Babylon ultimately takes Judah into exile. So Isaiah is speaking a time during some of the greatest upheaval you can imagine in Israel's history. Really the lowest moment um, in their story leading up to and part of their exile. So the book is shaped around this pattern of what God is up to. In chapters 1 to 39, the focus is especially on judgment that will come through Assyria and then later Babylon. So it, it's a largely negative uh, book. And I remember um, someone saying to me, hey, I'm reading through Isaiah right now. And I got to the middle part. It's getting really good because um, it's much more positive in 40 to 55. In 40 to 55, it's saying, you know, God's judgment on you isn't the end of the story. It's part of the story, but it's not the end of the story. God is going to be bringing you back from Babylon. And in fact, um, God will even use a suffering servant to atone for your sins. And then in the final part of the book, we have this combination of judgment and salvation come together. In a sense saying, Yes, God has brought judgment through Assyria and Babylon, 
And God has brought you deliverance from exile. But there is a greater judgment coming. There's a greater salvation coming. So as you move towards, and this is where we find ourselves in the story, as we await the inbreaking of an even greater salvation, an even greater judgment, it's a call for God's people to live righteously as they await that. So this just gives an orientation to um, uh, the book of Isaiah and how it's shaped. What I'd like to do with the remainder of our time is ask the question of, what will you see of God when you read the book of Isaiah? Five glimpses. The first is this. In the book of Isaiah, you see a holy king. In Isaiah 6, we have the prophet Isaiah saying, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his feet. With two he covered uh, his face, I mean, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This moment, when everything's crumbling or about to crumble in Israel's society, Isaiah sees a king. Yes, there are kings in Assyria. Yes, there's a human king, Uzziah, who just died. But there is a king Isaiah sees. And this is a holy king. And Isaiah, throughout his book, will refer to the Lord as the Holy One of Israel. And what happens when he sees this holy king? Isaiah says, I am undone. His sin is exposed. It's kind of like when you spill something on your clothes and you wipe it off and you think you got it. But then you step outside into the bright light. You're like, ooh, all right. Still got a stain there. Um, This is what Isaiah experiences. He sees the holiness of the Lord and it all of a sudden helps him see the sin in his own life. The sin all around him. And the terrifying message that he finds out is that this holy king has to judge his people. He's going to be bringing judgment through Assyria. But we see a glimmer of hope. God doesn't leave Isaiah in his sin. This holy king is also one who forgives. In that scene when that seraph flies with the coal and touches his lips and says, Behold, your sins have been atoned for. So Isaiah, and this is probably the greatest thing that attracted me to the book of Isaiah, is how it invites me into a greater vision of who God is. I remember preaching once um, in Australia And uh, someone came up to me afterwards, and she said, I think of Jesus as God as our friend, and I'm not going to give that up. I'm like, good. She said, but I also need to know God as the Holy King. And I think I've resonated with that throughout my journey with the Lord, and I think Isaiah gives us that vision of the Holy King. Another thing we see is that God isn't simply the holy king. He's also the saving king. When you turn to Isaiah 40, God's people have experienced exile. They're wondering if God is finished with them. And his word for them, as is reflected in um, the Messiah um, by Handel, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. 
Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare has ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. That's not the full gospel in Isaiah. It goes on. Not simply are your sins forgiven, but there's this voice crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way for the Lord, Yahweh. The hope of Isaiah is that God is going to come. And that's why in verse 5 we see the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And going on in verse 40, it's Zion is called to go up, O herald of good news, or the word we now use as gospel. Lift up your voice, O Jerusalem, herald of the gospel. What is the message? Behold your God. Behold, the Lord your God comes with might. His arm rules for him. And behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Here's a vision of God coming. And I, if, if you follow football, it's like the Heisman Trophy coming of God. With one arm... He's coming in vengeance. With the other arm, he's gathering his flock in his arm. Okay? We have God coming as the saving king. This is the gospel that God is going to come and make things new. That the story isn't over for those who've lived through the era of judgment. We'll also see glimpses in Isaiah of lead agents that God, if God's the king in Isaiah in the midst of all these other empires and he's going to come and establish his kingdom, we see a couple of lead agents that God uses to do this. In Isaiah 9, a passage that's quite familiar, we have a description of this light shining in darkness. And what is this light connected to? For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there is no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forevermore. In all four of the passages in Isaiah that talk explicitly about a future Davidic king, the hope centers on one thing. An agent of God from the line of David who will bring justice and righteousness to society. They are living at a time of oppression and injustice. And the hope is that God is going to use a Davidic king who will bring justice to this world. But then in the latter half of the book, there's a shift to a different agent. An agent that is going to deal with the sin that is keeping people from God. And the hope is for a suffering servant. A servant who, by his wounds, we will be healed. A a suffering servant who, it was the will of God to crush him. And somehow, through this suffering servant, create an offspring of servants who would be his people. And of course, when we look at the first three glimpses I've mentioned, Christ fulfills these all. John reflects upon Jesus as this holy king that Isaiah saw. The Gospels speak of Jesus as the one who has come, the one whose way was being prepared for, and we see Jesus even fulfilling these offices, a Davidic king 
and suffering servant. The fourth thing we'll see is a vision for a community that reflects the nature of God himself. In Isaiah chapter 5, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 16, it speaks of how God will be exalted in justice. God is a God who loves justice and who cares about justice, so God's community will be a people who care about justice. In Isaiah 2, you see a vision of God as this king to whom all nations will stream. So if God is the king of all nations, then his community will be international. Isaiah has some of the most explicit prophecies about the inclusion of the nations in God's people. And then we also see God's people reflect the nature of them being the redeemed, the redeemed of the Lord. Their king is a redeemer, and they are a people who have been redeemed. Then the final glimpse, and then I'll take, take questions, is Isaiah looks not simply to God being king, who has lead agents establishing his kingdom, to his com- kingdom community, but also to the realm of his kingdom. And we see this hope that Isaiah has of God creating a new heaven and a new earth. Of course, this resonates with how uh, Revelation ends with God making all things new. So this is what I wanted to share with you from Isaiah, 66 chapters that you will all have the joy of reading, hopefully at some point. But these vantage points, hopefully of saying, okay, how is this book calling me to align with God? How is this book drawing me to look at God as the Holy King? How is this book inviting me also to know God as the saving King and cultivate a hope of God's coming? The agents he uses. What we're to look like as a community of the King and then know that God's domain of his kingdom is actually the entire earth, entire heavens, that we await his renewal. So all uh, left, maybe eight, nine minutes for questions, which I was told you all like to talk. So let's, uh, so let's talk. Yes. Yeah, a couple thoughts. The first, the first thing um, is just for those who aren't familiar with it. There's a in scholarship, they tend to divide the book of Isaiah into multiple different books based on different tenors that you see in one to thirty-nine, forty to fifty-five, fifty-six to sixty-six. Um, and they were actually treated. Some have treated them as three separate books. First Isaiah, second Isaiah, and third Isaiah. What scholars are beginning to see, even very critical ones, is there's a lot of connections between all the different parts of the book. For instance, read chapter 12, read chapter 35. Those connect very closely with what you see in the latter half of the book. So, um, so my first answer is that I think that even if we might not know the full story behind its composition, we're dealing with one whole book. My position is that there's only one prophet mentioned in the superscription at the very beginning of the book. 
This is the vision of Isaiah ben Amoz. And there's no new prophet mentioned in the latter half of the book. And when you look at Ecclesiasticus, and I notice you read from the Apocrypha here, maybe you read from uh, Jesus ben Sirah, he talks about Isaiah, the prophet, being someone who prophesied about Babylonian exile well in advance. And if the earliest readers of Isaiah were treating Isaiah as prophecy, not later people who wrote, but actual pro- uh, words from the prophet Isaiah, I, um, that's where I side of reading it as one book. The other challenge is in the second half of the book, one of the ways they want to say to those, speak to the people is they're, they're doubting God because they'll have been in exile. And the prophet's saying, but wait a minute, look what our God can do. He can tell the future. And if we adopt a view of the book's composition that undermines its theology, that God is able to predict the future, it's, it's, it can be problematic. With that said, though, I, I do read the, the different parts of the book in light of what they're inviting me to read them in light of. And I think 40 to 55 has been shaped to address an exilic situation. So I, I kind of don't, I want to read the book as it's inviting me to. So I've rambled and talked in a few directions on that, but hopefully that's helpful. Exile is a time of a tutorial era for for the people, uh, preparing them. In fact, Calvin views even exile and then return from exile as the labor pains of the gospel, giving birth to a community who's learning this pattern of judgment and salvation. So I think you're very much right that the gospel is being taught to these people, but they don't know the fullness of how it's all going to come together. But this pattern of God is one who judges sin, and one who offers hope in himself uh, and his mercy is certainly preparatory. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, Jewish interpretation of suffering service is often focused on Israel. Yeah. Yeah, so just a little backdrop. There's all sorts of debate on who the suffering servant is in Isaiah um, 53, but also in the, uh, a couple other servant songs. And the argument is, and if you look at Isaiah 42, it refers to my servant Israel. So Israel is named. But here's what I find is, if you read it within the flow of thought, Israel is called God's servant in 42. But right at the end of 42, it speaks of who is blind but my servant. Israel, God's servant, isn't able to take up its task because of its hardness of heart. So in Isaiah 49, you see a new servant emerge, who I take as more of an individual figure, because this figure has a role of bringing not just Israel back to God. It doesn't make sense for the servant to be all of the nation of Israel if it has a mission to bring Israel back to God, but also all nations to God. So there's more of a reconciliatory um, focus of the servant as you get to chapter 49. And I think that gets clarified in how a servant can actually bring about this reconciliation in 52 where you have an individual who's suffering. And um, honestly, I, I can't... Re- Isaiah 52 to 53 to me is the most explicit prophecy about Christ's suffering that there is. And um, 
there have been a range of Jewish interpretations of that passage, and it hasn't exclusively been Israel. They just it's been hard to know what to do with that passage. Um, and I say this not to undermine the challenges of figuring out the identity of that passage, but I, I heard a Jewish man who became a Christian who went home to his mother, who was Jewish, and, and he said, Mother, can I read scriptures to you? She said, Sure. And he began reading from Isaiah 53. And his mother said, No, no, don't read the New Testament. Read the Old. No, Mom, I'm reading the prophet Yeshiahu to you. And, you know, that there's something striking, I think, about the affinity with Christ. Um, but it's a very debated question on figuring out identity as it relates to the suffering servant. I have one more minute. Another question? Yeah, John. So the between Yeah, great question. It's a more of a practical question of how does, how did the people of God work out this call for justice when the church is no longer intertwined with the state, say, as how Israel would have been striving to be. Is that the question? Yeah, because a lot of what the prophet has to say has to do with economic life, the structural stuff that we think of as being larger than really Yeah, yep. You read Isaiah 58, it, it gets more particular about how do, how do landowners treat those working for them. Um how about being willing to fast in a way where you're not just giving up food, but maybe your own personal rights to a debt that someone has towards you and letting them go free? I think, I think Isaiah has a vision, yes, of judges and the whole legal system being <laughs> remedied, which I think the church can push towards in society, but certainly not pretend that society is, our, is the government. But I also think Isaiah sees a vision for everyday life and what that looks like to carry it out, especially for those who are in positions of power, uh, not just at a high governmental level. And most of us in here um, have been or will be in positions of authority over others and how we're relating um, positions of status and power within society. I, I think these are all very live questions that Isaiah um, can give us vision into uh, as individuals, not simply the state. So. Yeah, so Isaiah 58 would be a great passage uh, to go home and read on that. Great. Well, thank you for uh, welcoming me here and blessings uh, to you all as you continue in worship uh, today. Thanks. Thanks.